All right, everybody, welcome to this episode of Establish the Edge. It is a solo podcast, also streaming it live on YouTube. I'm really actually tilting much of the ETR subscribers who are hoping to be listening slash watching to a showdown slate preview right now. And instead, they're stuck with me, giving them a solo podcast from Establish the Edge. But here we are. I know on this episode, I want to get a little bit more macro, a little bit deeper, talking about what I think is a strength of mine in fantasy football, which is patience and trusting our models and our processes that ETR and how that can benefit you over time, especially in DFS tournaments, how patience pays off in DFS tournaments. Before we get into that though, do want to just hit some housekeeping stuff. First of all, rate, review, like the show, like it on YouTube. It helps us a ton. Uh, you know, to keep going. So d- definitely make sure you do that. If you are playing on prize picks or if you haven't signed up to play on prize picks, if you're in a state like me in New York, it's awesome. It's a great way to bet props where you normally can't bet props. So check out prize picks, use promo code ETR. You'll get a hundred percent bonus match up to a hundred dollars. And that's instant. You don't have to wait around for it. And the other thing is I know we were took the week off last week on Establish the Edge. You're going to try and keep it going each week. It's, it's a little bit hard, a little bit hectic during the course of the NFL DFS year, but I really want to do that. So if you have ideas for topics and guests in particular, let me know, and we'll you know try and get those on the docket. The more prepared I am with the topics people want to hear about, the easier it is to keep these going every single week. So definitely... Make sure to uh, you know shoot me a DM in our Discord if you're a subscriber. Shoot me a DM at Two Hats One Mike on Twitter if you've got some ideas for the podcast. I know next week, next Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, going to have Pat Corain coming back and joining with Anthony Amico, who kind of took over for Pat doing the dynasty rankings that established a run, and we're going to redraft round one of uh, Superflex Rookie Leagues. You know, if we were to do our rookie drafts today, what would it look like? And that was a super interesting process last year. Last year with all the running backs and how things played out, there was a real big shift even a few weeks into the season. I don't know if the shift's that big this year, but uh, with the quarterbacks getting in and playing, uh, you know, I'm really interested to pick the brains of Amico and of Pat. Also want to point out, we did a show on Establish the Run looking at our top 150 rest of the season updates. And I've got that screen up here right now because it kind of plays into being patient. We talked about some players we're going to be patient with there. Also have the screen up just because I don't like my face getting too big on these things. So you're stuck listening to me and watching me uh, look at a screen. If you're listening on audio, you're not missing out too much. But that shows on the Establish the Run feed. And we're going to do it each week. Me, Adam Lovitan, Mark Dinkenberg, we're going to look at the rest of the season top 150. So let's get into today's pop topic though. And again, it's might be, I'm hoping it's not too dense, too dense uh, of a topic, but I really want to kind of take a step back and, and look at kind of like get wax philosophical a little bit about DFS. We are in our ETR analytics Slack channel. I've mentioned this, but we are reading a book called noise. We have a book club. It's like king of the nerds over there. Uh, and this book, Noise, I think is really interesting is as I'm reading it, it just every 
part of the way. It makes me think about NFL DFS and projections and how I go about things. And the general premise of this book is we're always aware of bias in predictions, you know, in our case, projections for NFL. And bias is kind of like, can, can it show its way in a variety of ways? You know, maybe we're just too optimistic on all the players. We're over projecting them because, you know, we're projecting too many plays run in a game. That's a bias. Or we're over projecting old players because we're not accounting enough for age-related decline. That would be uh, a bias. But there's another type of error, which is noise. And it, it, the book goes and kind of shows how predictions are really affected by the inconsistencies in human nature uh, when it, when it, and, and noise is a big part of that. So the examples they use in the book, like if you're an insurance company and you have two different people working for you and they're going to assess you know the premium on an insurance claim, these two people with the exact same information could come up with like wildly different predictions. So there's so much variance based on like, well, who is the one exactly doing the prediction? So this book's really interesting talking about how to reduce noise and the variance that comes in our making in making our predictions. And uh, so that's like the general premise of the book. And the part we're on right now, part three that I find really interesting is it talks about how simple models over time simple linear models are better at predictions than human judgment. And a lot of that is because they reduce noise. Like simple models are super consistent. And it, you know, the book even went as far as looking at a personality test and seeing like this person rates, you know, five in leadership, eight in work ethic. If you just gave the same weight to all those variables, it still comes out better than a human judging that. And that's because Oh, someone says something's not coming out of my mic. Let me know if you're listening to this live. Let me know how the how the sound is. Um, uh, just because I was having some issues with the microphone, but let me know. So that tangent was again. The the crazy thing was these personality tests. Like, not only do you not need a simple linear model, but you could have something that has like equal weights. Like, it weights all the variables the same, basically, and it still does better than a human being because humans are so noisy in their predictions, like little things. We think we're good at predicting these really complex, you know, looking at information and finding these complex patterns when really we stink at it, you know? And they, they talk about in the book, something called the illusion of validity, which is we have confidence in our evaluations in terms of what looks better, but that leads us to overstate what will actually be better. So there's a big difference between an evaluation and a prediction. And I think that happens to us in fantasy quite often where I know I'll get this. There might be a 55-45 decision and I feel really confident I'm picking the right guy out of the coin flip in an evaluative sense. You know, I think I know Derrick Henry is in a better spot this week than Alvin Kamara and is more likely to score more points. My confidence in that evaluation leads me to overstate the probability that Derrick Henry will actually outscore Alvin Kamara. So I think that's that's what's interesting. And what this comes back to as far as like, what does this have to do with established to run, with using projections and doing stuff for DFS, is I think there are points in time where we really need to trust the model. We need to trust kind of the, the end points that it's giving us and we need to kind of put our bias and put some of the noise aside by trying to be so specific with every single decision we make. If we can get ourselves 
in a routine where we're making similar decisions based off similar information over time, that's going to pay off a big way instead of always trying to find the outliers. Now, there's still a lot of human judgment that goes into the ETR process. And especially in terms of the inputs that go into our DFS projections. So I went back and looked at last year when we're making manual tweaks in our model, let's say plays run on a team, you know, we think it's 67 is too high. We bring it down to 65. Those evaluative human judgments we found are very much improving our model and our accuracy over time. So that's where we play off of the expertise that I get from Evan Silva, from Adam Levitan, Andrew Wiggins, Drew Dinkmeyer. All those minds working together, they do help us feed the model the most accurate inputs possible. And I think that's really key is we do want to take advantage of our expertise and human judgment to get the best inputs possible because we know garbage in equals garbage out. So there are some things that, you know, a simple algorithm can't account for, you know, like we just heard of Baker Mayfield's shoulder injury. You know, the model doesn't know that Baker Mayfield's not playing at hundred percent health. You know, we, we can adjust for that. Or if you flip from new England's play calling tendencies last year, to this year, you know, the model won't recognize right away It'll take too much time. There'll be too much lag and understanding that going from Cam Newton to Mac Jones, the play calling of the team is going to change so dramatically. So the key is really more about getting the best inputs in the model and our projection system as possible than it is overriding the model at the end point. You know, once we have the final information, I think we're, you know, we're best off being as unemotional as possible about it. And this kind of hopefully lets us repeat the same decisions over time. So as far as DFS, how that relates, there are kind of four key components. If you watch Dink and I on Establish a Million on Saturdays uh, as part of the ETR DFS package, we hit on these four. There's basically four components it comes down to. We're looking at the ceiling projection of the player. We're looking at their base projected value, You know, their base projection relative to their salary. We're looking at how frequently the field is going to play these players. Is Derrick Henry going to have field exposure of 35% or 5%? And we're also looking at correlation within our lineups, You know, stacking, bringing back with opponents. Once we have these four factors, that's, that's basically it. We shouldn't be looking too much at anything else. You know, we should be treating players very similarly and reduce noise as much as possible by, again, repeating the same decisions, regardless of the player, if those four inputs are the same. And I'll give you an example of like where I didn't do this and introduce noise to my process. So week one, I kind of thought Kyle Pitts was a unique outlier and that his ceiling was really high and I was okay playing him into, into really high ownership. If it was a different player and I was looking at the same inputs, the ceiling, the projected value, the field exposure, I would not have played Kyle Pitts week one. That was kind of me introducing some bias, some noise into the process. So I I got burned on that. I played a 40% owned Kyle Pitts at tight end, which is just like an absurd thing to do. Like over time, you should not be making that decision. And it's a decision that I should have just known to not make, but I really kind of talked myself into the uniqueness of Kyle Pitts. I had that uh, illusion of validity, if you will, where I thought my superior judgment would help me realize, okay, Kyle Pitts is an exception. He's worth it. So you fast forward to last week, similar situation with DJ Moore. I love DJ Moore. He was going to be chalk. I didn't play him. Now that didn't work out. 
but I think it was the correct decision. And I think I learned from week one, but you see where that noise affects the results. If I make that same decision both times, I get smacked around when DJ Moore goes off, but I have a huge benefit week one when Kyle Pitts fails as huge chalk. So I think what this tends to not, not, not zooming out. If you're wondering like why patience pays off is the title. I think one of the things I'm good at with DFS is being very patient with players and being patient with teams and players that may be underperforming, but the underlying peripherals are strong. And I think I'm able to do that by removing feel to an extent by trusting our projections. So I think this is something that's hard to do that. Like it's really hard to play guys that have burned you time and time again, week after week. Um, Mike Davis is an example. I I've kind of known as the Mike Davis apologist and defender, but like, it's really difficult to bring yourself to click his name. He's not on the main slate this week. Thankfully, it's really difficult to bring yourself to click that name because it's really gross to play the same guy over and over again when it's just not working. You know, at a certain point you throw your hands up and it's tough to do. You know, people are going to mock you for making that play. You see snarky comments on Twitter. There's also, you know, the the mantra that stupidity is repeating the same mistake over and over again and expecting a different result. And I get that, that it's really difficult. But the reason why you have to be patient, at least when the underlying peripherals are good, is the NFL is such a small sample size, high variant sport. And I don't think that gets driven home enough. And even if we're a little bit overly patient, when it comes to NFL DFS, generally the payoffs are in the right spot in these scenarios, where if we're being super patient, we're playing a guy that has burned people three, four weeks in a row, no one's going to play him. So not only do I think we're justified and right in that play from a hey, let's trust the projections in the model standpoint, but we get the big payoff if we're right. You know, what do you win when you win? You win in a really big way. I mean, like if all else fails, if the market's overreacting to actual performances, we should just assume the opposite. If a guy keeps going off week after week, the market's not buying it at all. Maybe you should actually just buy into it just for the sake of like, hey, maybe if there's something there, it's worth the payoff in the end to just assume the opposite of the market. However, what generally tends to happen is the opposite, is the market buys in too much to these small samples. And I think the market's getting sharper and smarter in this regard, at least over like a two to three week sample. But as we're four weeks into the NFL season, I think that's when people start to get impatient. Like they don't realize players can have, you know, not just a bad two or three games, not just a bad five or six games. Players can have a bad half season. Players can have a bad full season. And and like, honestly, it it can be a lot of run bad. I I know that kind of sounds like I'm trying to be unaccountable, but I'm not trying to be unaccountable for things. It just, that's the nature of a sport that, again, very small sample. They're only playing 16, 17 games, but like even within each game, the way things can break for or against you, it just can swing things so dramatically. So one of my favorite examples I've talked about in a couple podcasts recently is Darren Waller from last year, where it felt like for ETR, we were over projecting him every single week. And I went back and looked at it. His Between his games three and game 11, a nine-week stretch, he topped 17 DraftKings points just one time. 
almost impossible to keep playing this guy, right? As an expensive tight end on DraftKings, you can usually just punt it off. Like, how do you keep playing him? Like the projection, he's coming in below the projection every single week. But like the inputs were good. He was going to be a high target share earner. And then all of a sudden, he has that game against the Jets where in a good matchup, he ended up being like 5% owned, completely broke the slate and scores 45 points. And all that over projection for nine straight weeks, you throw in that 10th week and we we ended up not in about even. If anything, we under projected him over that 10 week stretch just because of that one week. And, you know, it wasn't just that 45 point explosion. He also had 27 and 30 points in two of the four games after that leading to the end of the season. And I think especially with ceiling performances, we have a tendency to write people off as like, oh, they don't have a ceiling anymore. I mean, this used to happen with Cam Newton where uh, back when Cam Newton was good, but like not crushing it every week, there'd be stretches where people go, you know, Cam Newton doesn't have a ceiling anymore. But like he was the same guy that ran and he just wasn't, you know, he just had a handful of bad performances and then, and then he'd put up a big ceiling performance and it's like, oh, okay, we can play Cam Newton again. He's got a ceiling. He's shown it. And I don't think that's like the best way to approach things. There are some guys when they're banged up and they're hurt that I'll be more tentative with. But for the most part, like we have to trust our process and what the projections are are, are spitting out on these things. So uh, I want to give, you know, one example of that was last week I played at an Atlanta double stack in my highest stakes entry tournament. It was the Thunderdome 5,300 entry, 40 person field. I play Matt Ryan, only person that plays Matt Ryan. Now, I get crushed because I had a Cleveland-Minnesota stack. I also get crushed because the Matt Ryan stack itself ran pretty bad and that the running backs combined to score all four of the touchdowns he threw and none of them went to Kyle Pitts and Calvin Ridley, who I played. But because I was willing to put aside all the chatter about Atlanta stinks, they suck, Arthur Smith's a fake sharp, and I've put some of that out there too, like Matt Ryan's dust. Matt Ryan was the top three projected value on DraftKings for us that week. You know, and we're accounting for these things. Remember, you don't want to double and triple count. Like we're accounting for the fact that Arthur Smith's not passing as aggressively as we hope for. We're accounting for the fact that Matt Ryan has struggled recently. We have a decay model that weights recent performance a little bit more meaningfully to try and get ahead and catch these declining performances. And Matt Ryan still spun out good projected value. Good correlation in a game stack with other players that I want to play. Really low field exposure. Made the play. Got rewarded on Ryan specifically. Didn't win in the lineup overall. But I think that that's kind of the patience. Stick with the process. So a couple guys that I do like this week. You know, I'm going to get into some particulars now. But I think George Kittle, unfortunately for Kittle, who is ranked, you know, still 35th overall in our rest of season rankings, tight end three. The thing that's tough with Kittle is he missed practice twice this week. I really wish he was healthy because I don't think people are going to play him either way. So even if it doesn't apply to Kittle this week, but he is the Darren Waller of this year. Like the underlying peripherals are fine. He's getting targets. He's getting air yards. He's the same explosive, talented player we've seen. He's on this offense that's going to have some really big spike weeks. The ceiling is going to come for Kittle. We're going to have a rocky ride getting there. It's going to be volatile. We're going to have... Some performances, we're playing Kittle at 6K and he's given us, you know, eight points and we're wondering why the hell we don't just punt tight end, but he can get that 30 plus point day that just completely breaks the slate and he can do it at single digit ownership. So, uh, you know, Kittle's an example, I think of someone we have to stick with. Another one 
for me is AJ Brown, another player who, if you look at our top 150, he's just above Kittle, 33rd overall. Some wide receivers have passed him, and but he's coming back from injury this week. Like hopefully he's healthy. Really good matchup against Jacksonville. Their defense is absolutely atrocious. And you look at AJ Brown. He earned targets weeks one and two. I believe he was above um, a a twenty percent target share. Now he's playing without Julio Jones. He led the league in yards per out run two straight seasons. He's very young and extremely talented. He's an absolute machine out there. You know, we should not be fading or afraid to play A.J. Brown because we're worried, you know, Tennessee's just going to run the ball seven-point favorites and, oh, look, you know, A.J. Brown stunk the first two weeks. Yeah, hurt the third week. Now, so so that's a player, too, that I'm really buying heavily into, and I think we need, again, the patience is going to pay off, and we're going to get outsized returns when it does pay off because we're going to get ceiling performances. We're going to get them at you know pretty low ownership. Now, there are going to be times where we want to abandon patience, you know, and that's when the inputs really change. But like, again, that's kind of what the projections are going to tell us. But I think there are situations too. When guys are hurt, I don't mind playing I don't mind playing guys coming back from injury. I played Dalvin Cook last week, got burned on it, but have had success where people are really afraid to play guys coming back from injury and their ownership's like way too low. And if for, if they're fully healthy, it's huge. If they're not, you know, it fails like Dalvin did last week. I don't mind making those plays. I'm a little bit more tentative on the guys that are you know are playing through an injury. You know, it's not coming back from an injury and they might be fully healthy. So Baker Mayfield playing through the shoulder injury. I might not be as patient on Odell Beckham and some of the passing game optimism I had for the Browns coming into the year. Odell specifically, I could have had a massive game last week against the Vikings. The air yards were there. It's not like I'm totally jumping off because the opportunities were there. But, you know, I, I think of Alvin Kamara, I think it was two years ago where he had the ankle thing he was playing through. And it was like, he, you know, he wasn't as efficient. He wasn't finding the end zone and it was hard to tell if it was bad luck or the injury, but these guys that play through injury, you know, that, that those are circumstances where I might wait to see it before I play it, you know, or quite often we're trying to play it before we see it, but I might wait to see it on guys that are banged up. Then there's other guys like Mike Davis. who I talked about, I do think people are being overly critical and overly harsh of Mike Davis. I do think that his role is actually still pretty good and some of the efficiency stuff isn't his fault. But you know what else I think? It's the same offensive line and same coach that he's playing with. And I also think the ceiling isn't there in a way it is for A.J. Brown and George Kittle. So again, with this patience, it pays off when we're going to get outsized returns. But with Mike Davis, the payoff might be he scores 17 points a few weeks in a row. And we say, see, I told you his role was fine, but did, you know, what did we win there in terms of DFS if he scores 17 points three weeks in a row? Not that much. You know, that's not a huge payoff. Like it's a good value. It's fine. Is that worth the risk of maybe we're missing something? Maybe he does just stink. Probably not. So that's where you kind of have to, you know, again, I, I know I, I intro this talking about noise and wanting to make the same decisions over time. And now I, here I am kind of 
trying to impart my personal judgment on a player like Mike Davis. But again, that ceiling component is one of those four components. That's a really big thing. And I do think there's like an objective kind of payoff that we need to understand. But there's also the flip side of patience. I mean, there's players that we're we were low on that we should have been higher on and we can abandon patience. So I look at Mike Williams, for example. This is kind of like reverse patience because it's a player I was down on coming into the year. It was an offense I was worried about. But I do think when we see a stark role change, when we see coaching tendencies that are a little bit stickier is when we can kind of abandon patience and like buy in to some smaller sample stuff a little bit quicker. And we've done that with Mike Williams. We've adjusted you know, his role for his A dot. He's going to earn more targets than we ever expected. And not only that, the team's really high in pace, really high in pass rate over expectation. It's a sharp coach. Justin Herbert, who we were worried about, you know, maybe regressed, looks pretty good. So all those things we're throwing into the projections and spits out. And now it's ironic because Mike Williams is coming off his worst game of the year and is expensive. He might actually, despite starting the season really hot, go under-owned where people aren't chasing this signal enough and they're too worried about the specific recency bias in that he finally had the letdown game last week and he's got the really high salary this week. So he's somebody else that I'm really an eyeing up for DFS this week. Again, I hope that we get some positive signs on Kittle in terms of his health, but him, AJ Brown, Mike Williams, those are three players right now that in different ways, Kittle and Brown were being patient with them. The success hasn't been there. And we're going to get outsized returns because of it. Mike Williams, the opposite. The success has been there, but people might not be buying into it this week in particular because of the bad week last week and the high price tag. And they might not be adjusting actually fast enough to the underlying peripherals. So um, yeah, very long-winded kind of rant. I probably won't have too many solo podcasts, but I did think it was like really interesting again, just reading through this book and like considering how we make decisions. And if we can kind of stabilize those decisions over time, you know, and the big thing for me and the ETR process is like, let's make our adjustment in terms of getting the best inputs possible into our projection system. But once we do that, let's trust what it spits out. Let's not fudge things after the fact because, you know, it doesn't tell us what we feel like we want. Uh, and I think as, as a result, we're going to find a lot of opportunities where the market's scared and we have more confidence than the market because we're willing to sort of trust this mechanical judgment instead of trying to have to do a human end judgment every single way through the course of the season. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Hope my rambling didn't go on too far. But again, let me know what kind of topics you'd like to see over the rest of the in-season Establish the Edge. I'm going to try and do it Wednesdays or Thursdays, one podcast each week over the course of the season. Really appreciate you all listening to this. And again, if you are listening and enjoying it, please give a rating, a review. If you can check out the Establish the Run YouTube page, you know, liking and subscribing really goes a long way as well. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.